Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, episode number 206 with Wayne Swass. How are you, Wayne? I'm good. I'm impressed, uh, Dale, in six episodes. Good effort. Well done. Thanks for having me yeah, on. I'm surprised uh, people have been listening that long, mate. Now, one of the one of the things I love when I get an ex-AFL superstar on Wayne is half my audience is international. If, you, if I gave you one minute, how would you describe AFL, the sport that you made your name in, to a global audience? How do you describe it? Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Controlled chaos. Hard to understand if you don't know the rules. A beautiful game that combines skill, talent with competitive edge. It's unique in the sense that contact can come from 360 degrees on the field. Uh, We have funny little men in funny little uniforms refereeing and umpiring. Uh, We have passionate, crazy supporters that yell and scream during the course of a game. It's a game unique to Australia. It's our Indigenous game. It's a game that I love and uh, one that gave me a lot of joy um, over many years. But I'm w- way too old, way too slow uh, to think about even getting on a foot field ever again. <laughs> now, Wayne, mate, that is probably the best answer I've had. I've had a few XAFL players on here. And you have you had that question before? That was brilliant. No, I've never had the question. It's just, just the answer came to my head. Mate, so, you can write uh, that down. Put that on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, fantastic football career, Sydney, North Melbourne, um, 282 games, mate. They're very close to the magical 300. Um, now, do you want to, for the people listening, because when I remember growing up watching you in the, when North Melbourne were unbelievable, you wouldn't know back then that I thought everything was amazing. But obviously, that wasn't the case throughout your career. And um, do you want to just paint the picture of how... I don't know, mental health played a role in your life um, and probably, you know, something back in that era that it wasn't accepted. And, and do you know what I mean? That it, it was something that we just got on with and didn't speak about. So do you want to sort of paint the picture about your career and obviously the struggles you went through? Yeah, sure. So to give people context, I started playing at the elite level um, in 1988 and then I retired in 2002. So um, that was a, an era where... Um, you know, not just uh, through the industry, but more broadly, the community, um, males and men uh, had this perception or expectation uh, that we were meant to be strong, we were meant to be resilient, tough, courageous, all of those important characteristics, um, which I think that I possessed. But equally, we, we weren't expected to, and we were judged very unfairly if we were emotional, if we were vulnerable, and this really important emotional skill, which is the ability to cry. We, we, we lived in an environment and, and a time, and I played through that period, where we just weren't expected to behave that way. And if you did behave that way with vulnerability and emotions and crying, then you were certainly seen as weak. You were judged, you were criticised, you were seen as soft. And unfortunately, sometimes you'd lose respect. So that gives you the context with regards to the period that I played And up until the 9th of August, 1993, I had a very basic, limited, and probably ignorant understanding of what mental health meant. My uncle was a psychiatric nurse. 
And when I was a young boy growing up, I would go across the, the street from where he lived and he worked across the road in a psychiatric institution in country Victoria, about three hours from Melbourne. And I remember as a young boy walking through there and there were these people that had great personalities, but clearly things weren't normal. And these were people that had all sorts of different mental health conditions. And that was the limit of my exposure to what mental health really meant. So I was ignorant and, and uneducated in regards to what it meant. But two weeks before, on the 26th of July, 1993, at the age of 23, I had a nervous breakdown in my car. Um, up until that moment, I'd only ever seen my dad cry once when his mother, my grandmother, passed away. So I grew up with this mentality and attitude that real men don't cry and those that do are weak and soft. Yet on this particular night, I cried and I cried uncontrollably. I didn't know what was happening. I had no comprehension of why. I had no ability to calm myself down. It was just this overwhelming experience and emotion of complete and utter mental breakdown. Um, and what I chose to do was I got home and I sat out the front of my house where my fiance was for an hour and a half because I couldn't bring myself in to, I couldn't bring myself to show that vulnerability and emotion to my fiance because of this thinking that she would see me as weak, see me as soft and she'd leave. So this is something that I did for two weeks. And then at the end of the two week period, thankfully my fiance said at the time, we need to see a doctor. I was diagnosed with depression on the 9th of August, 1993. Sadly, I waited until June of 1999 before I actually acknowledged that I was sick. And then more importantly, I decided to ask for help. So on the date of diagnosis, I'd, played, I'd managed to play 98 games. I was reasonably good at what I did. I was vice captain at my football club. Um, but I played the remaining 184 games of, of my career, hiding the fact that I eventually lived with anxiety, depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. I never told anybody, no teammates or coaches. I never told my family. The only, there was four people that knew, three professionals, two doctors, a psychiatrist and uh, my wife. I, I, I refused to tell anybody else because sadly I believed and was convinced that if I told people, I'd lose respect, I'd lose relationships and I'd lose my career. So regrettably for me, I spent 10 and a half years of my career pretending that I was healthy and compromising my well-being to protect other things and they were the thoughts, opinions and behaviours of other people. What I've come to appreciate and what I've learnt through this journey is that my health is the most important uh, thing in my life and I've got to do everything I can to prioritise that and look after it. Yeah. That, now, Wayne, that's just sitting here. That's an incredible, that's such a long time to suppress feelings and, and suffer in silence. Were there, were there times throughout your career where you you were close to telling someone or is it just still that mentality that, you know, men, we don't, we don't share. And, and the era you were playing footy, it was tough. And I understand exactly what you're saying, but were you close at any stage? I can't tell you the number of times where I was in the company of my teammates who I love dearly um, on the verge of crying, desperately wanting to talk to them and share with them what I was living with. But every time I felt those emotions coming towards the surface, I'd grab another beer or in some cases, I self-medicate using drugs. And I'm not, I'm not proud of those decisions um, and I'm not glorifying those decisions and I'm certainly not encouraging people to make those choices because the reality is that alcohol and drugs don't help. But the reason I self-medicated with alcohol or drugs was to minimise the potential of disclosure because in my thinking through that period, I was convinced without ever testing it 
that if my mates, my teammates, my friends, my family, my coaches, if anybody knew outside of the four people that I was prepared to tell, if they knew they'd see me as weak, they'd lose respect and I'd lose those relationships. And for me, that was something that I wasn't prepared to risk. So I did everything I could for 10 and a half years to hide the fact that I had these illnesses. And the irony of that is that when you invest into a facade of lies to keep yourself protected of what people will think, unfortunately, what you do is you invest your energy energy into things that aren't important. And what I mean by that is when you invest into lying and pretending in the facade, you're, you're investing it into areas that are not productive and conducive to healthy and well, being healthy and well. So it took me 10 and a half years to understand that I have no control over what people will think or say or do. What I have control over though is what I choose to do for my well-being. So eventually, 12 years after diagnosis, I told my family, 12 and a half years after diagnosis, I spoke very openly, publicly, and told people what I, what I went through. And that was the beginning of me getting my life back. I had to go through those decisions, those experiences, and, and, and take ownership of those decisions to understand what is the most important thing. And, and at the end of the day, without wanting to sound selfish about it, my health, your health, anyone's health is their responsibility. So I have to own that. And without those experiences in this journey, I wouldn't be in the position that I am today. And I'm grateful for that. Mm. And I spoke about this openly as well. Before you can love anything, anybody, you must love yourself first, Wayne. And, and I think people are starting to realize that now of what we're going through, you know, you've got a lot more time with yourself and you're slowing down and there's things we may not like about ourselves, but we need to get on with it and um, we need to do things about it. Now, I can imagine when you, leading up to telling the world, that must have been one of the most nerve-wracking, horrific experiences. But then what was it like afterwards? It would have been like someone had just lifted the biggest weight off your shoulder ever. I can't imagine what it'd feel like. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a bit in that, Dale. And, and I'll take you back to October of 2005. I'd been hiding what I'd lived with for 11 years. Came home one day. Um, my wife, I walked in the door. We just had our twin daughters. They were, they were uh, about a year old. And I'd finished calling a game of football because I've worked in the AFL media for a long period of time. Walked in, my wife said, how are you? I said, I'm really tired. She goes, what does that mean? So this is before I've told my family and this is before I went public. And I said, I'm really tired of the lie. And she goes, okay, help me understand that. I said, I realise now that I've invested 11 years of my life pretending and hiding to everybody that knew me, apart from those four people that knew um, that I've been healthy and happy and I, I haven't been. It's been such a waste of my energy. And she said, good, I've been waiting for this moment. And I said, what does that mean? She goes, we're actually going to have a family meeting. And much to my uh, pro uh, protesting, I said, I don't want to do that. She goes, no, we need to do this now. Now's the right time. She called a family meeting, which included some close family members and most importantly, included my dad. And uh, my dad was probably the, the, the main person that I was scared of telling because I thought that my dad would see me as weak and soft. And my dad's acceptance and love is overly one of the most important things to me. But I'd convinced myself that if I told him, this is what he'd think. I never asked him. I never gave him that choice. <laughs> These are the assumptions that we make. Yeah. Now, I've, I've played in grand finals. I've played in state of origin games. I've played in big games of football in front of 100,000 people. I can honestly say I've never been more nervous 
than what I was going into this family meeting because prior to the meeting, I was convinced that once I told those people in, 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 the, in the room, they'd get up and they'd leave. So I was very nervous. I was very stressed. I was quite anxious about it. And eventually we had a two to two and a half hour conversation. It was very raw. There was a lot of emotions with a lot of tears. But proudly, all of the thoughts that I thought would eventuate, all of the things that I thought and believed would happen, never happened. Every single person that was in that room cried. We hugged. There was a lot of love and there was a lot of care in that room and not one person left that room, which for me is a really important lesson. I believe this is the response that I would get. I believe that I would lose these people. What I realised and what I now appreciate, people who genuinely care about you may not completely understand what you're going through, but those people that care about you, family and friends, they want to they help, they want to be there. And for me, I look back on that 12-year period and I never gave these people the opportunity to understand, A, what I was going through, but then B, giving them the opportunity to understand what I was going through and then work out how they wanted to support me. So not only did I deny them that opportunity of helping me, I denied that of myself. I never trusted myself or these people to say, hey, I'm struggling. So that was number one. And then when I made a decision to go public, I did a, a rather large article in one of the uh, largest newspapers here in Melbourne with uh, a reporter, Mike Sheehan, who I've known for a long period of time. And I was abs and this article went to print on the 1st of March, 2006. And I knew once the article went to print, my story was out. There was no going back. And I didn't sleep well the night before because I was of the opinion again, oh, there's going to be so many negative comments. People will be disrespectful. They'll judge me. They'll see me as weak. Um, I've got to say the, the next day I walked down the street in the suburb that I was living with and I can vividly recall a man across the side of the opposite side of the road coming across the same side of the street to me and I've never met him, don't know his name, and said, thank you. I said, why are you saying thank you to me? He goes, because your story is my story and you've just given me hope and some inspiration that if you can do that, then I can do that. And what I realised that day, Dale, was the story, I was no longer a prisoner to my story because for 12 years I was. I was a prisoner in my own jail because I made decisions to keep it silent. But when you, when, you, when you are prepared to share your story, there's two really important things that come out of that. Number one, you're not a prisoner anymore. You can become the author of your future chapters. That's empowering. But secondly, when people share their story, the other really valuable and beautiful thing that comes out of that, you actually give other people permission to do the same thing. And if I, if, I, if, I, if I knew back then through that 12-year period what I know now and the way that I would have been accepted and respected, I would have done things very differently from the beginning. Mm. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, Wayne. And, <laughs> you know, if we could all look back on that. One thing I'm really fascinated with that is, mate, that uh, you must have an amazing wife, for one. Um, but secondly, what was the weight, I suppose, of her? Because it really sounds like she was burdening a lot of... And this is the thing, you know, when you're keeping something in silence and only one or two other people know that a lot of time you go to them. So how did 
what was the reaction for her? I'm sure she was immensely proud of you and everything like that, but it must have been a weight off her shoulders as well that she didn't have to just be the number one sort of caregiver or, or secret holder of, you know, what was going on in your life. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really important question because these conditions don't just affect or impact the person who lives with them. They affect the support network. And if I'm being really honest about it, I I never gave my wife the opportunity of sharing the load with other people. I never allowed her to do that, which is which is really unfair. And I'm not making excuses, but my decision making process was very clear to me. If I encouraged and allowed my wife to talk to other people about what I was living with, then one person would become two, two becomes four, and that continues to multiply. Before we know it, the risk of disclosure is, is increased. So I, I denied my wife the opportunity of talking to people for her own mental health. And I, I regret that. I really regret that because that was a selfish decision that I made to protect the risk of it becoming public knowledge. And the burden that she carried was was different, but just as big because she had her um, she had to not only live her life, but be there to support me and, and pick me up countless times, thousands of times. Um, so the toll I took on her was was quite big. Um, and, and if I had my time again, I would actively encourage my wife and my support network. Hey, if you need time out with this, take it. I'm not going to take it personally. I want you to prioritise your mental health. I want you to do things that help you feel good, that help you stay healthy and well. But during that period, I didn't have I didn't have that ability to think beyond myself, and it was desperate decision making because of the fear of people seeing me as weak. Um, they're, they're unfortunately some of the hard lessons that I've had to learn. But I do think that people that support loved ones that go through this, there are times where it's a thankless task. And I understand that, but anyone that listens to this conversation who's supporting a loved one, in order to support that loved one, you must support yourself. And it's not selfish to look after yourself. It's an absolute fundamental thing to do. And if you need to have time out to do things that help you keep healthy and stay well emotionally and mentally, then I want to encourage people to do that because when we're healthy and well, we can support the person that we care about more consistently. Mm, so true. And I think even though you know you'd love to change the past i think by actually telling your story and allowing it the amount of people you've helped with that is incredible and you probably get this all the time but how how many emails and nice things have you heard of people saying you've saved my life or your story has changed this do you get that all the time mate because the scale you have gone out of and when you really spoke your story there was it was still that mentality that men are tough we don't say this get on with it so there's a few questions there, sorry, mate, but um, you must be immensely proud of what you've been able to achieve so far with everything you've done and sharing your story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of... I, I want to preface this answer, Dale, by saying I'm no better or worse, no stronger, no more courageous, no more resilient than anyone who has or is going through these challenging experiences. I'm not. The fundamental difference... The, or the, funda the fundamental difference between what I've chosen to do and a lot of people, and this is not a criticism, and we're starting to see more people do this, but I chose, I chose to talk openly and honestly about it. Why did I do that? Because that was really important to my health and well-being. I denied myself the ability to heal and recover for 12 and a half years, and it's not worth that. 
So why do I do what I do? I do what I do because it's important to who I am and me being healthy and well, number one. Number two, I don't do what I do for the pats on the back. I don't, I don't go looking for adulation or credit. I do what I do because I passionately believe in the opportunity that I have through Pucker Up and the work that I've done over the last 15 years of having a positive impact on people's lives. That's why I do what I do. This is, this is hard work. There are times where it's completely overwhelming because of the nature of the work and the nature of the conversations. But I'll share an example of why this is so important and why I believe so passionately in the work that I do. Last week, I delivered a, a wellbeing webinar for a large media company based here in Melbourne. And um, once I joined the webinar, there was about 50 people on the webinar and with Zoom, um, there'll be the name of each individual participant on the call. And up in the top, there was, there was about, I don't know, eight or nine rows of people. But within 30 seconds of jumping on the call, I saw my mate who invited me in. He was about to make the introduction before I started talking. And right next door to him was another guy and I saw his name. Now, this guy three years ago was on the verge of um, taking his life. And I was talking to my mate who was about to introduce me on the webinar three years ago on a phone call. And he was talking to me about the other person and about how concerned he was with regards to his mental health and emotional well-being. And halfway through the conversation, because my mate was ringing me to ask me for some advice. And halfway through the conversation, he went quiet and he was ringing me. So after about 10 seconds, I said, what's up? And he said, very quietly, he goes, the guy I'm ringing you about has just walked in the room. So I said, okay, now's as good a time as any. I said, put him on the phone. Now, I'm not going to mention the guy's name. Um, but he hopped on the phone. Uh, he happened to be a Mad North supporter, so it was a good start. <laughs> and we, we just started having a really honest conversation. And I very, very respectfully, but uh, matter-of-factly, just said, what's happening? How are you going? What are you thinking? And it became very apparent that this man had a plan and he was going to execute his plan on that particular day. He told me that he's, uh, he'd uh, got his parents to come and pick up his kids. He had two young kids. He was married. Had all the things that you would think would make him happy but was clearly struggling. So once it became apparent that this man was at risk of hurting himself, um, we came up with a different plan. And that plan was that he was going to call his parents once we got off the phone. He was going to call his wife and he was going to call his immediate family and friends and they were going to have a conversation that day to talk about what he was going through. I'm really proud of the fact that this man did that. Three years on, he's on the Zoom call last week. And again, this is not about me, but this is really about the power of honest conversations. And everyone that listens to this discussion has the ability of having these discussions in their everyday life if you're prepared to do the work. And the reality is that we will all come into contact with someone that we love or care about who is really struggling. And if we're prepared to hold that space and know the right type of questions to ask without needing to be the expert, we can prevent somebody from hurting themselves. And this is what happened at the end of last week's webinar. Um, the man that uh, had, had turned his life around got up and spoke about his hero. And his hero was me and it was very emotional, it was very humbling and completely unexpected. So we finished the webinar 
And I go home that night and I got a private message from the mother of this man, thanking me for intervening three years ago and saving her son from doing something that would have not only damaged his life, but his family's life. Now, as I said, Dale, I don't do what I do for these things, for these things to be said or those messages to come through. But those messages come through a lot. And my career was great, but my career was all about me. And if my team won, we would elevate the mood of our supporters for a few days. If my team lost, they'd be disappointed and pissed off for a few days until the next game. I can honestly say that I do not believe in 282 games for football my life, my career saved a life. It never did. But I can honestly sit here and say the work that I've done with both the Sunrise Foundation, my old charity, and now Pucker Up, my new social enterprise, we've, 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 sorry, we've saved, I don't know how many lives we've saved. And not only on top of that, but we've had a profound impact on hundreds and thousands of lives of people, not only across Australia, but around the world because of the work that we do. And I don't know anything else that I could do that's more rewarding and more satisfying, even though it's bloody hard work sometimes than the work we do now, because we believe that every life matters and that's why we do what we do. Oh, mate, I'm sitting here, I've got goosebumps, I'm smiling, nearly brought a tear to my eye. That is an amazing story, one you should be so proud of. It. I, unbelievable. Hopefully somebody listening to that right now is feeling the same way I do because let's be honest, before 2020, mate, mental, we're already in a mental health crisis. The world it wasn't going in the best way. And then you add in a pandemic, coronavirus, loneliness at an all-time high, all these different things. What can people do right now just to... You know, the lack of human connection. And we're both in Melbourne. We're both in lockdown. Life's tough. What are some things that people can do after listening today to reach out just to, you know, touch base with a mate, a friend, a family member, anyone? What can they do, Wayne? Yeah, great question and really appropriate. Um, we're, 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 this is not a plug, but we're about to launch a brand new website with Pucker Up. So that's puckerup.com for people. Um, what I, what I do, what I do, and that'll have a host of different resources and videos and content available, which I think is really appropriate. I want to go back a step. I've been, I've been advocating for uh, mental health and wellbeing, better mental health and wellbeing outcomes for the community and individuals for 15 years. And I've, I've always believed in the importance and need of changing the way that we fundamentally approach mental health and wellbeing in Australia. Because historically, we've done the same thing for decades, yet we have more people who are in crisis, more people who are living with mental health conditions, more people who are thinking about hurting themselves. So if you take the emotion out of that, we look, if you look at that unemotionally, you go, we're doing the same things we always have, but the results are not different. So from a pucker up perspective, what we're doing is we're not waiting for people to get sick. We want to help people stay healthy. So this is a long-winded answer to your question. What can people do? I had someone say to me recently, the gift of COVID is time. And what I mean by that is certainly for Melburnians and other parts of Australia and potentially around the globe, we're all working remotely unless we're essential workers. We've got more time at home, which means that we've got more time to make different choices. And what I mean by that is, we've got two really simple choices because of COVID. If we're working re remotely and working from home, 
then we actually have more time available to us because we're not commuting, we're not traveling, we're not stuck at the office. So we do one of two things. One, we don't use the time. So we don't use this opportunity to develop our emotional toolbox. Or we look at it and go, I've got more time in my day. What are the strategies and tools that I can start to experiment with, try, implement, and if I like them, begin to put in my toolbox? So it's about developing our emotional skill set. And what people can do is quite simply, what are the practical things that are actionable today that help me feel better in a world that is full of negativity, uncertainty, fear, financial hardship, economical restrictions, a loss of employment, stress because the family unit is all together every day, seven days a week. This is, this is a really stressful experience. So what are the practical and actionable things that people can do? And I'm going to share some because I'm about giving people practical advice. Love this. Are we prioritizing our sleep? Sleep is the most important thing that every person can give to themselves. Are we going to bed early enough? If, if, if we're using alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. It will lower our mood and interrupt our ability to get quality sleep. So if we're using alcohol regularly, I want to encourage people, have a couple of nights off without using alcohol and see what your sleep's like. Sleep, if we don't get sleep, we get tired, we become agitated, then we can become overwhelmed. And if you're if, if you like me, you, you have these periods of overwhelming sadness. If I don't get sleep, I have all of those things happen. And then what happens is I increase the probability of inviting anxiety and depression back into my life. So I have to get sleep. I know I need to. So that's, that's number one. What's our diet like? And I'm not just talking about what we eat and what we drink. What do we consume? What do we watch, read, and listen to? Think about what our diet is. If we eat shit and drink shit, we'll feel shit. But also what we consume by way of media and content can have a negative impact on how we feel and how we, how we think. So look at our diet. If we're eating poorly, we can start to make some changes to eat better. If we're drinking poorly, we can swap out poor choices with some better choices. And earlier this year, I had 25,500 Twitter followers on my account. I closed my account. Why? Because Twitter's negative. It's having a negative impact on my well-being, so I don't need it. So I just got rid of it. So consciously think about what we eat, what we drink, and what we consume. Thirdly, are we exercising? I ride my bike. I'm a passionate cyclist. Why? Because of the physical benefits. Pre-COVID, because of the social connection with my mates that I ride bikes with. The number one reason why I ride my bike is because it's meditating. Really important. So exercise is important. Go for a walk, go for a run, doesn't matter. Just get out and move. The other things which I think are really important for people is we're living in an incredibly challenging or we're living through an incredibly challenging period globally. What's really important is to accept the situation and accept it because it's beyond our control. If we resist it and push back against that, we're investing energy into that resistance. What, what I want to encourage people to start to think about, okay, this is scary, it's uncertain, I'm not sure about the future. Right, I acknowledge that. And we're all going through the same experience. But instead of directing your energy externally, start to direct it internally. And whatever feelings and emotions we experience on any given day, they're relevant to us. We aren't weak, we aren't soft, we're not man enough, we, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not um, less of a person for being upset, sad, emotional, overwhelmed, crying, whatever it is. Our emotions, are our, 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 they are our internal tools 
that allow us to feel, think, and communicate what it is that we're experiencing. So what I mean by that is give ourselves permission to think, feel, and communicate whatever we're thinking and feeling on any given day. If we're happy, great. If we're angry, okay. If we're sad, it's all right. If we're upset, not a problem. And if we need to cry, cry. Because denying those strong emotions adds to the stress. Giving ourselves permission to experience and express those emotions are actually very therapeutical for what we're experiencing on that given day. And this is just as important for men as it is for women. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the things that I've fundamentally been challenging for a number of years now is this narrative which has been perpetuated and handed down from generation to generation. I'm a 51-year-old male. And it's this notion that men don't cry. That is utter bullshit. That is a story that we've been sold and we've all bought into it. And I'm not being critical of any man. And the, and, and the reason I believe this so badly is I've done 15 years worth of presentations across the country to all sorts of groups from multinational businesses right down to small community groups. And I do an informal form of market research. I ask the audiences every time pre-COVID, stand up if you can remember a time as a young girl or a young boy when you cried because you felt pain, you hurt, and it was a natural emotion. 99% of my audiences, which are mixed, male and female, all stand up. So, yep, and I'm the same. So what that proves is this. Boys and girls have different genders, but they behave the same way. They feel pain, they hurt, they laugh, they giggle, they get angry, they get frustrated, and most importantly, they cry. It's not a female thing. It's a human being thing. So this story or narrative that oh, this is what women and girls do is, is not true because boys are born the same way because audiences validate this for me. Then my follow-up question is, stay standing if you've continued to behave the way you did as a young girl or a young boy as you've grown up into an, uh, an adult man or an adult girl. And sadly, what I've come to realise is that just as many women sit down as men. And if I was to put a conservative figure on how many people stay standing, less than 5%. And the reason why I share this is because we are being conditioned to disconnect as human beings because we grow up. Why? Not because it's our expectation. It's because people are teaching us, conditioning us, and telling us that we've got to stop being emotional. No, human beings are emotional creatures. We laugh, we get angry, we get frustrated, we yell, we scream, we giggle, but we don't cry because we've been taught not to. It's never been more important for all human beings to give themselves permission to tap to all of their emotions. When we deny it, it increases the stress that people go through. And I am fundamentally and unapologetically tackling the narrative of emotional connection because sadly it's causing more stress and regrettably it's taking too many lives. And for me, that's unforgivable. We can't, we can't have that. Oh, well, and I'm just sitting here, mate. This would have to be the most powerful podcast, but the easiest one I've ever done. You have just given the listeners so many things. And what I would recommend is from everything you just mentioned there, don't go and try and implement them all. Pick one of them. If your sleep's no good, improve it. There's a great TED talk by Matthew Walker. Watch that. 
If you're drinking too much alcohol, cut it out. Go for a walk, drink tea, improve your diet, drink more water, move your body. Simple things like that. Pick one thing and work on it daily because at the moment, you know, there's so many things you can't control, but one thing you can is exactly what you just mentioned there, Wayne. And I would highly recommend that. They'll make a huge difference. Now, last question, because I know how busy you are, new website launching, all these things going on. What have you learned one thing about yourself during COVID? that the tools that I've developed and been using over the last 26 years, the tools that I was relying on and utilising every day pre-COVID have helped me through and continue to help me through an incredibly challenging experience. I mean, I'm a small business owner. And three weeks ago, I was really concerned and worried and unsure about the future of our business. But it's those tools and those skill sets and strategies that I've relied on for so long that I rely on through this period. And without those tools, the experience would be exponentially harder, more stressful, more upsetting. Um, and as difficult and as challenging as, as those experiences are, I take great comfort knowing that I have the ability to use my toolbox, which I've developed over a long period of time. And and I don't say that lightly because what it really means is I'm in control of the decisions that I choose to make. I have tools available to me. I have a network of people around me. I'm not worried about pretending anymore. So it's taken me a long time to get to this, Dale. Um, but I've, I've given myself permission and I've empowered myself to own my health and my well-being. When you are in that position, you don't focus on what other people are going to think or say. You focus on, right, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling stressed, or I'm feeling sad. And I've felt all of those emotions lately. And I felt them very strongly yesterday. So what I decided to do was I stopped what I was doing. There's a park about three minutes away from me. I went to the park. It was a sunny day in Melbourne. And I found a quiet park bench. And I sat, I sat in the, on the bench, closed my eyes, and it just allowed the sun to warm my body. We li we're living through a crazy time. That might sound silly to people but I don't think there's any idea that's silly right now. So that's a simple, that's, that's a strategy that I implement if I'm feeling stressed, sad or overwhelmed. The sun is a great energy source for me, as is the bike, as is eating well, as is going to sleep, as is communicating with key people. Whatever it is that we need to do to be healthy and well and deal with stress and mitigate the impact of it, now's the time to be implementing those strategies. So I, I guess my long-winded answer is, I'm grateful that I've been able to develop my own toolbox, which I tap into every day, which is helping me navigate the challenge that every person is trying to navigate at the moment. Yeah. So, so true. And, and I think what you just mentioned there is that everyone will have something at the moment and that, you know, going into sitting in the sun and being present, because at the moment you can worry about what you've lost as a small business owner. You may have been made redundant. Um, you don't know what's going to happen in two weeks time. You can't change the past, but what you can do is you can do things for yourself. And as you said, you've got more time, go and sit in the sun, go for a walk, you know, leave your phone, do not take your phone with you and just be present wherever you are. But I think that's the big thing right now that if you are not happy, you need to start doing little things. And at the end of the day, you're in control of this. So if things aren't going well, stop doing the same thing because that's the, that's the 
insanity if you do the same thing over and over and expect the day to be different. So Wayne, firstly, mate, thank you so much for, you know, being so vulnerable over the years and sharing your story and helping so many other people, but then also for making the time today, because I think your message with mental health is so important, but particularly through COVID and 2020 and everything like that, it doesn't matter if you're suffered before, everybody will be feeling different emotions at the moment. So start implementing something you've mentioned today and take action, all right? Love yourself first and you can love others secondly. So guys, episode 206, uh, check out Pucker Up, new website. Um, Wayne's got a mad podcast as well. Fantastic guest. So Wayne, before I let you go, mate, thank you so much. Um, we had a little mishap yesterday, but I'll tell you what, it's been worth a great man. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, Dale, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I uh, want to acknowledge and congratulate you. 206 episodes is a, is a really good effort. Um, you know, and, and, and I hope that people that listen to this conversation are able to take away some practical uh, strategies that they can begin to experiment and implement with. And, and it would also be remiss of me, Dale, that, you know, if there are people that are listening that are feeling that they're overwhelmed or that life's getting a bit too challenging, I just want to acknowledge those people that, that that's okay. This is part of the experience. I'm not saying that it's right, but if people are really struggling and they're feeling like it's getting a bit too much, then they can call Lifeline, Sane, Beyond Blue, um, you know, and, and for those people that are listening overseas, I'd be confident that there would be appropriate service providers, dedicated telephone services. Really want to encourage people to tap into those and also, don't forget your GP. They're a great starting point if people feel that they might need some professional support. Yeah, so true. And and just reach out to your friends at the moment. I know the technology is amazing. FaceTime, calls, Skype, Zoom, whatever it is, just touch base, connect, chat, um, because human connection, we are human beings and we are missing that at the moment. So, Wayne, once again, great man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure, mate.